Good evening, man. All right. Good to have you guys here. My name is Thaddeus. Ooh. You all right, Josh? Okay. My name is Thaddeus, and I'm very happy to be here and to be given this, uh, this uh, class, I guess, on uh, understanding the times and just engaging and understanding biblically, thinking through a biblical lens uh, about the issues of culture. Right? Uh, a little bit of background for myself. I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago, so if you hear the accent, that's where that's from. Right? Uh, if ever you don't understand what I'm saying, you can either have a really puzzled face, right? Uh, or you, you know, just stop me, I can repeat myself, that's fine. Right? Um, a lot of interaction here as well is encouraged. We're gonna have a time of Q&A after the presentation. So if you've got big questions, feel free to hold, the, hold those um, in your minds and we can ask those at, at the end. Um, I encourage you also to take notes. There's gonna be your, each of you should have received a little handout there. It has some notes already on it, but I'm assuming that you'll probably wanna add some extra things. If there's something that I say that uh, interests you, or there's something new that's not on the paper, or maybe even just write down a question that you might have that you want clarity on at the end. Feel free to, to make use of it that way. Right. Um, so with that, let me just give you a little bit of a rundown of what uh, today's session is going to look like, uh, and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll jump on in. In terms of today and the tasks that have been given, uh, we'll be covering a couple of different things. We're going to start off with addressing the myth of neutrality. I'll explain a little bit more about that um, shortly. Then we'll talk about distortions of law, distortions of the gospel, both in, in the context of our culture. And then we'll talk about what's meant by being not of this world. When Jesus says that in John 18, says my kingdom is not of this world. What does exactly that mean and how does it impact us in terms of how we live as Christians and within the culture, engaging or not in the culture. And then we'll go over some recommended resources and do a time of Q&A. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going. I know men, you guys want to have a plan and know where you're going. So that's where we're going. And I'm hoping that the Lord will be blessing us. So let's just pray uh, as we start off this time. Would you bow your heads with me? Our sovereign God and Father, we thank you so much that you are the uncontested king of the universe. You rule and your supremacy is unmatched, God. Even in the midst of troubling times and changing circumstances, you are the rock. And you're the one to whom we can look to for stability and security. God, we thank you that you've not left us without a guide um, in terms of uh, how do we navigate these troubling times, but you've given us your word, which is complete. Uh, You've said that it's is, is able to make the man of God complete, lacking nothing, equipped for every good work. And God, we pray that tonight, as we look at cultural issues and we seek wisdom from your word, oh God, I pray that you'd give me clarity of speech and thought. I pray that uh, your word would, would, would um, enlighten our minds and help us to think through these well, oh God. But most of all, God, we pray that this uh, session would glorify you. We pray that we not just um, want to think Christianly, but to act and also even to submit our emotions and our affections to you, O oh God. Uh, you want our whole self, O oh God. So we offer that to you. We pray that tonight would glorify you both in our words and our heart's disposition and our actions, O oh God. And I pray that tonight's session, your word would not return void, but it would bear much fruit, O oh God, in the lives of every single one of these men here. And we pray this all for the glory of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, awesome. Well, let's get started. Um, let's just jump straight on in. We're talking here about cultural issues, and there's a whole slew of them that I was requested to comment on. And this is going to be way bigger of a list than I can ever hope to hit within the space of time that I have here. So what's going to happen tonight is more of an overview, right? Uh, don't expect me to go into detail on every single one of these topics. 
But I think if you've been alive and uh, attentive for at least the last three years, some of these probably resonate with you, right? That you've seen this or heard of it. Uh, I'm sure if you've heard of like so, uh, stuff like social justice or cultural Marxism, or even perhaps in some of your, your companies, you're hearing about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you've probably heard of the Black Lives Matter um, you know, movements and climate crisis. All these things, they seem kind of random and sometimes a little bit extreme. And we're wondering as Christians, okay, how should we think about these things? Um, my goal here is not to get, dive into the nitty gritty of every single one of these. It's to give you an overarching framework on how to process this. Um, each one of these topics could be by itself its own class. Right, so don't expect that of me tonight. What I'm hoping to do is give you an overarching framework of how to understand these things. Okay? Um, and I think that scripture actually does uh, you know, prepare us for thinking biblically about every aspect of life. The Bible doesn't just speak to our spiritual lives and our personal piety. It speaks to every aspect of life. God has given us the totality of his word. Um, so about, so our, the Bible must frame our response to the culture for it to be truly Christian. That's my whole thesis behind this. And the most important thing they need to take away from tonight's session is going to be this principle, that there is no neutrality, right? What we're talking about here as we, we address different cultural issues that we'll be looking at is actually an issue of anti-gospel versus the true gospel, a woke anti-gospel versus the biblical gospel. And I'll unpack that a little bit more. It's really an issue of competing religions that we're dealing with, especially as we deal with these worldview issues, right? Um, and this principle of no neutrality is very clear in scripture. Uh, although it's kind of ironic, a lot of Christians and even people in general want to posit some sort of neutrality that we can go forward with, you know, that, oh, we need to meet on neutral ground. We need to put aside our, our, our beliefs and our presuppositions, just meet somewhere neutral. But the thing is, that's actually a myth. It doesn't really exist. And I'll show you. Um, actually, I'll show you firstly from Scripture. Jesus himself says this. Right? In Matthew 12, he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That doesn't sound like he's giving much room for neutrality or sitting on the fence. There's two categories and you fall into one of those, right? Um, Jesus, you know, has a lot of difficult statements to understand. This is not one of them. This is super clear and direct, right? He's like, no neutrality, either with me or against me. And that applies not just to people, but to ideologies as well and to cultural issues as well. Because guess who is behind the cultural issues and ideologies? People, right? So this idea of no neutrality applies even to this. Reality is binary, regardless of what other people are saying these days. Right? So no one is neutral. And we have to believe what the Bible says about these issues. Right? That the state of a sinner, for example, apart from God's saving grace, um, the Bible talks to, about sinners as slaves to sin, dead in their sin, rebellious by nature against God. Right? It's not using neutral terms. It's using terms of either, like Jesus said, either with me or you're against me, right? Um, there is no neutral descriptions in the Bible of un, in terms of unbelievers and believers. Uh, even atheists actually have a worldview, right? Even atheists who sometimes are the, the loudest proponents of this neutrality, this supposed neutrality. Uh, so, for example, um, every atheist has some starting presupposition. Everybody is, right? Um, that they can't prove, they just have to assume. So take, for example, if you are an atheist and you're positing a world without God, right, and you're trying to make an argument, how do you prove that, for example, laws of logic work without using logic? You can't. You have to presuppose logic. You can't prove logic because then you have to use logic to prove logic, right? And there's these starting presuppositions that we all have to hold by faith. So even though the atheists may say they don't have faith and they're neutral, they actually do. 
right? They may use something like, oh, I have confidence, I don't have faith, which is ironic because confidence just comes from the Latin confide, with faith, <laughs> right? Um, everyone has faith. Everyone has, has religious presuppositions that they have to start with. That's the nature of reality, okay? Uh, Greg Banson, he was a former professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, great apologist. He says this, it should be recognized that the claim to be or the attempt to be completely objective and value-free in deciding an issue of truth is ridiculous. The very fact that evidence is collected, arranged, and evaluated by each man's own mind and in response to his personality and past experiences indicates the strong element of subject subjectivity that is involved in setting issues of truth. Right? So every culture encapsulates and expresses some sort of religious belief because culture is simply a product of people who create out of those religious worldviews. Right? This is the fundamental point here in terms of there's no neutrality on these issues. Right? And misunderstanding this fundamental point, I think, has been a source of a lot of confusion within the church. Um, now, let's comment a little bit about culture because we're going to be talking about cultural issues. What is cultural? I like the, the definition of culture that Henry Van Til gives. He says that culture is simply religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. Why is that? Because all of life is religious. Every person is inherently religious. Why? Because we're all created to worship. And we all worship something. Either you worship the true God, or like Paul says in Romans 1, you, read, you worship the created rather than the creator. Right? And because of this, because all life is religious and we all worship something, then therefore, culture being the product of people is actually that religion externalized. Because we all create culture from our most deeply held values and beliefs and things that are important to us, right? So culture is actually religion externalized. And if culture is religion externalized, then culture um, produced will reflect the religion of a society. So think, for example, a Muslim society. What type of culture does it create? Islamic culture. A Hindu society. What kind of culture does it create? Hindu culture, right? Um, our Judeo-Christian-based Western countries what type of culture was produced out of that, right? The culture encapsulates the prevailing religion of a society, okay? Um, now, politics related to this also involves people, right? And politics is actually, if culture is religion externalized, politics is religion legislative. We'll get to that in a little bit, right? So politics is downstream of culture. Where the culture is, the politics will follow, okay? Um, Dr. Joseph Booty insightfully comments this way. He says, it's impossible for any social order to be neutral. That is, neither one thing nor the other. Every civilization is and will be inescapably committed through the spheres and institutions of family, academy, law, art, and government to a religious or cultural consensus, be it humanistic, Islamic, Hindu, Christian, or any other. Someone's morality will be legislated. Someone's philosophy taught in the schools. Someone's vision of beauty and reality idealized in the arts. The illusory idea of a neutral order or prejudice-free space for an equal toleration of all views or gods is a myth utilized only to facilitate the establishment of a new intolerance. That's very true of what's happened in our culture. We've been sold this myth of neutrality. We need to be neutral, right? Keep your religion out of politics, for example. Keep your religion out of schools. Keep your religion out of all these things. But what's being brought in, is it a religion-free, value-free, neutral thing? Not at all. We'll get to that. Um, this is being actually uh, recognized by some politicians. This is um, the policy advisor to the U.S. state majority leader, uh, Bill Wishman. He says this, we've learned that politics is downstream from the culture. 
not the other way around. Real change has to start with the culture. All we can do on Capitol Hill is to find ways gov government can nurture healthy cultural trends. So this is why it's really important for Christians to start to understand culture and then also have a healthy biblical perception of how do we engage with it. So first thing is don't be neutral. Since neutrality is a myth, don't buy into the myth. Don't be neutral. Psalm 14.1 says it's the fool who says in the heart that there is no God. So don't be a fool and don't act like a fool by trying to act as if there is no God. Because that's the space of neutrality, really. It's saying that there is no God. Um, Colossians 2 says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. All of them. That means that there's not one single treasure of wisdom or knowledge that's outside of Christ. We need to believe that as Christians and hold to that. I'm going to skip over this one. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about the distortion of law because we need to illustrate this a bit, right? In terms of this, this presupposition of there's no neutrality. Um, it's either for Christ or against Christ, right? So how does this play out in the public sphere, okay? Um, well, you've heard the phrase, you can't legislate morality. I'm sure somebody's probably told you that. Maybe you've bought into that. Um, you can't legislate morality. It sounds good on the face, right? That we should have our laws apart from religion. But I'll posit this, that that's actually false. You, you can only legislate morality. It's just a question of whose morality. Okay, let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. RJ Rushduni, he's a scholar of biblical law. He says this, uh, the, fact that, the fact is that all law is religious. All law is based on some ultimate standard of morality and ethics. Every system is founded on the ultimate value of that system, and the ultimate value is the God of that system. The source of law for society is the God of that society. So it's not a matter of whether we legislate morality. It's whose. And if it's not a morality based on the true God of the Bible and his law, it's going to be some humanistic law, some substandard law, some imperfect standard and fallible standard. Um, let me illustrate this, right? Um, so recently, uh, this all happened within the past two years now. Uh, bill C4, for example, which is the bill on conversion therapy, so-called conversion therapy, um, goes so far as to actually put into law and criminalize with, with very heavy sanctions and criminal penalties um, associated with speaking against the LGBTQ narrative and giving counsel from a biblical perspective on sexuality. That's in Canadian law now. So let me ask you, is that a neutral law? No, it's, it's encapsulating somebody's values, right? Bill C-11 is going to very seriously restrict freedom of speech online and, and subject it to the censorship of the federal government. Again, is that a neutral law? What standard do you think the federal government is going to be using to censor things by? Is it going to be a Christian standard or is it going to be their own atheistic secular standard, right? Something is being encapsulated. Some value system is encapsulated in law. And this is why it's important for us to continue to remember this, that when we talk about law and politics, we're not talking about a neutral sphere. And we shouldn't think that way as Christians, right? Modern Christians keep retreating from various spheres and topics once they're framed as political because we're told to keep religion out of politics. And thus, the issues that the church and God's word can speak to, they grow ever increasingly smaller and smaller. That's the strategy, right? Say, so, oh, no, no, you can't speak about that because it's political. Oh. Right? Oh, you can't speak about that. And then all of a sudden, what you can speak to is so small, you can't really say anything. That's how you get silenced. That's, how, that's the frog being boiled in the pot. That's what's happening. Okay? Um, so there is no neutrality. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about this idea also of separation of church and state. That's a related sort of theme. Now, in principle, that's a good principle, that the church and the state are separate entities. They should not be mixed, right? We don't want, for example, pastors, you know, uh, ruling the civil magistrate and, and so on, right? Um, and vice versa. We don't want the civil magistrate um, telling churches what they should preach and those sorts of things. They're separate spheres. So there is a good um, way to understand separation of church and state, that they have separate spheres of authority, okay? And those are delineated and given by God. But separation of church and state does not mean separation of state and God. Very important. Separation of church and state means that there's separate spheres of authority, but it does not mean that the state is somehow autonomous and not accountable to God. Because Romans, 1, Romans 13, which has been used quite a lot in the last couple of years, it starts off this way. It says that there's no authority except from God. And that's in the context of the civil magistrate. The civil magistrate has authority because God gave it to him, right? So this idea of separation of church and state has to do with spheres of authority and where they can exercise legitimate authority. When they start to transgress those spheres of authority, they're acting inappropriately. So, for example, let me illustrate that. Um, if, let's say, a pastor right, was to go to a business owner and tell him how he needs to um, run his finances and set salaries and all those other things, that would be inappropriate. Why? Because the pastor is outside of his sphere of authority. Right? The pastor and elders, they set the doctrine of the church, they guard the doctrine, they handle church discipline. All of those things are within their sphere. But outside of that, they can give recommendations, but they can't act authoritatively. Right? Um, similarly, like you guys experience this uh, for yourselves. You are the head of your household within your family, right? which means that you can exercise, let's say, discipline to your children. But it does not mean that you can now exit your family and go to another man's family and exercise discipline the same way. That's his sphere. Right? So they're separate spheres, similarly with the church and the state. Does that make sense? Yeah, awesome. Good. So separation of church and state, good. But separation of state and God, bad. Right? And that leads to really bad places. <clears throat> so if we fail, though, to, to bring the civil magistrate under God's law, um, we end up actually finding out that scripture, what Scripture has always told us. And that's that life apart from His law leads to slavery. Uh, because it's only God's law that is the perfect law of liberty. That's what James 1.25 says. Um, Joe Budin's book, The Mission of God, says this. What most Western people, including many Christians, are asking for in the name of freedom is, a, is in fact a new slavery. When they attempt to secularize the public sphere and pursue freedom without the lordship of Christ. To object to this by saying that non-believers are not accountable to God's covenant law or moral law is finally to say that we have no basis for presenting the gospel to the unbeliever. Since scripture defines sin as lawlessness and only lawbreakers need the gospel. I've heard this, not from you guys, but I've heard this around that, you know, we need to not put um, into practice God's law and principles within the civil sphere and whatnot because that'll distract from the gospel. But that's actually not true. Um, Righteous laws based on God's standards of righteousness have a didactic function. Law teaches. That's one of the functions of the law, the threefold function of the law. One of it is to teach us what is God's good standards for right and wrong. Right? Even in Romans 13, it talks about how the civil magistrate must, must reward the good and punish the evil. Well, by what standard? Do you think Paul is thinking just by some arbitrary standard that he makes up? 
No, Paul was thinking about God's standard because right after that section, Paul actually quotes from the Decalogue, right? So God's law must be the standard by which the civil magistrate adjudicates what is truly good and what is truly evil. Otherwise, we end up in an unjust society, right? Um, so <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 7, 7, right, that um, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So you see, Paul is arguing there that the law had a didactic function. It taught him what covetousness is. So when you have in public law, in civil law, right, laws that are based on God's righteous standards, it teaches the whole society what is God's good, righteous um, will for, for godly living, right? When we have unjust laws that, for example, say that, LGBTQ and, um, you know, deviant forms of sexuality are all good and to be celebrated, like it's being done for the whole month of June. What does that teach society? It does not teach them that God's standards of sexuality are actually what's good and right. It teaches exactly the opposite and actually makes gospel ministry potentially even harder because now you've set a cultural atmosphere where it's just assumed that those things are good and you have to actually do more work now to, to show, no, no, no. These things actually lead to death, okay? So God's law, when it shapes the, the law of a society, actually prep a society for reception of the gospel. Because like Dr. Booth said here, that only the lawless need the gospel. So they need to be convicted by the law that I am a transgressor of the law to know that they need the gospel, right? Um, it's actually ironic. This is a little bit off script. But the reason why, if you look at um, America and Canada, Actually, Canada is interesting because um, Canada has a way more Christian beginning than America did, which is, I found very interesting reading into that. Um, but you look at the society and how Christendom flourished here for a period. Why is that? Well, you look back far enough into the history, the Puritans and the settlers that came here, what were they basing the laws that they built this society on? God's law, Right. And that set an environment for the gospel to flourish. Now, does that mean that everybody was saved? No, not at all. But it did provide an environment in which the gospel could flourish, right? Okay, let's move on. God's law is the law of liberty, right? We want to be clear that by works of the law, no man will be saved. What I'm advocating for is not salvation by law. You're not saved by law. You're saved by the gospel alone, right? Um, by the law, we're made aware of our need for salvation. So the, the law is the diagnosis, not the cure, right? And the law is not a means of salvation, but it is a means of sanctification, right? First Timothy 1.8 says that when, we, when it's used lawfully, that it's a good thing, right? So God's law, both natural and written, is the only objective standard of morality for a society. Adirish Duni says this, that if God's law is not the overruling government over all things, then some other kind of superstate must provide it, right? And as a result, a world of status, lawmaking bodies soon seeks to create a fiat world law, a world court, a world state. If, there's, if there be no God with a governing law over all things, then a man-made world order must replace him. And that's kind of what we're seeing today. That's what we're seeing today. Um, I'll skip over this because we talked about sphere sovereignty a little bit uh, already. But let's talk about how should we then live. I'm going to be interjecting these points uh, as we go through today's session, right? Because I want you to have some concrete points as to, okay, well, what do I do with this speaker, man? Like, what do I do with this information? How do I then live, right? And this is the famous question posed by Francis Schaeffer. How should we 
then live. After you've learned this, how should we now live in response? Well, firstly, develop a biblical view of civil law. Again, that's a session that could be like its own th series on its own to, to figure out what biblical law has to say about civil law. And I'd encourage you, there's some resources at the end that I'll point you to in order to equip you in that. But you should seriously think about that because when you go to the voting booth, you need to go not just neutrally, but with your Christian worldview informing how you vote, right? And the only way you know how to be informed about that is by having a biblical view of, of civil law. And secondly, take action, right? Um, one of the freedoms that we enjoy here that many immigrants, such as myself, <laughs> are coming to enjoy is the freedom of being able to vote and have a, a say in your own civil government. Make use of it. It's a good thing. It's good for Christians to be involved in, in politics in that way. You can even run for office. There's nothing wrong with running for office as a Christian. And once you're not compromising as a Christian, right? Those are practical ways. For example, getting involved in your local school board is another way that you can really practically impact quite a lot of culture by being involved in a local school board, right? You can write your MPs. You can write the lower level magistrates, such as your, your, um, your town mayor and so on. Um, you'd be surprised, actually, how much response you'll get from local politicians. Oftentimes, we, we set our, our sights too high, like we want to like email Justin Trudeau or something. Um, but he's most likely not going to read it, one. Um, but the lower level um, civil magistrates, they will, because they're kind of more on the ground, they're closer to you. You can have quite a bit of impact with that. Don't underestimate that, especially if, let's say, a group of, I don't know how many people are here, right? If all of you were to start petitioning the local magistrates here, what kind of impact could that have on Huntsville, the town of Huntsville, right? Um, and those are just practical ways you can live out your Christian faith and not be neutral in the civil sphere. All right, to say a lot more about that, but we have to move on for the sake of time. So that was some of the distortions in terms of law. Let's talk about some of the distortions in the culture in terms of gospel, right? Because what we're dealing with is a anti-gospel anti woke culture. You'll hear a lot of different terms that kind of are synonymous. There's some shades of meaning, which I can get into here, but things like cultural Marxism or critical race theory or intersectionality, if you hear those things as I go and present here, they're all sort of referring back to this one thing of woke ideology, okay? So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely, I'm getting to that. No problem. All right, so... Um, you probably all were aware of the whole BLM riots that were happening in 2020. I don't know how you could um, have missed it, but that was one very visible expression of how woke ideology played out and enacted in a culture. Um, what's the fruit that it produces? Okay, um, This is not just an issue out there. This is an issue in the church too. These are some books that are circulating even within like, evangelical circles. Right. Um, so this is not just an issue that's outside the church, it's in the church now too. This, this book, Woke Church, has been quite popular and it's been around for quite a while too. I think it was published in 2016. Um, so a definition of wokeness. Uh, Owen Stratt, in his uh, book, Christianity and Wokeness, great book by the way, he defines it this way. Wokeness is first and foremost a mindset and a posture. The term itself means that one is awake to the true nature of the world when so many are asleep. In the most specific terms, this means one sees the comprehensive inequity of our social order and strives to highlight the power structures in society that stem from racial privilege. That's wokeness with regards to racism, right? That's the short sort of definition. So it's talking about inequities that exist 
um, and stem in this case uh, down to issues of race. Right? So now again, as with all the other things, this issue of openness, cultural Marxism, critical race theory, all those things, they're not neutral. Somebody's religion or worldview is being encapsulated in these values. Okay? And ultimately, I want you to, to hear this, that this woke ideology is ultimately another religion. It's actually an anti-gospel. I'm gonna unpack it in those terms, just so that you can see it very clearly. Right? What we're seeing today in this woke ideology that's pervaded, pervading all of society is this, it's the outworking of a new religion displacing the old Christendom upon which our societies used to be built, right? Um, our societies, they've been secularized and a new religion has taken its place. So the current culture simply is reflecting this religious shift, right? It's not that the culture has gone religiously neutral, it's adopted a new religion, right? And it has its own presuppositions, such as Darwinistic natural evolution, right? That's one of the presuppositions of this secular religion so to speak, right? Also, uh, postmodern philosophy is another big influence and presupposition. Marxist social theory is another thing. I'm sure you've heard probably that term being thrown around. And in today's political left, particularly, and in colleges and universities, this is the pervading ideology that's driving a lot of things. It's in Hollywood even, Disney is promoting a lot of these things, okay? So very important for us to understand what this is. Uh, Rod Dreher in his book, Live Not By Lies, says this, that the intellectual, cultural, academic, and corporate elites are under the sway of a left-wing political cult built around social justice. It's a militantly liberal, illiberal ideology that shares alarming commonalities with Bolshevism, including dividing humanity between good and evil. This pseudo-religion appears to meet the need for meaning and moral purpose in a post-Christian society and seeks to build a just society by demonizing, excluding, and even persecuting all who resist its dogmas. So this is not something to be trifled with. Actually, there's been professors that have been speaking out about this. Uh, Elizabeth Corey, she's a professor at Baylor University. She, she calls it a quasi-religious Gnostic movement, which appeals to people for precisely the same reasons that all religions do. Why? Because it gives an account of our brokenness, an explanation of the reasons for pain, and a saving story accompanied by strong ethical imperatives. Woke ideology is a religion, right? And people ultimately are turning to it because either self-consciously or unwittingly, they're actually seeking religious answers to life. They're actually seeking religious answers to life, right? They're seeking it in the wrong source. We have the right source and we should tell them. This is part of the gospel proclamation that we need to be doing. Right? But we can't mistake this point, that we're not dealing with just a, a set of abstract ideas. All of these things, the LGBTQ agenda, the uh, cultural Marxism, the critical race theory, even the radical climate change alarmism, they're all connected. I can't get into all of the details of it, but they come, they stem from one common worldview that has the same presuppositions. For example, the Darwinianism, right? That's a fundamental starting point. So Rajai, he, Sorry, it's another gospel. Let me frame it in this sense. Social justice and woke ideology answers these four fundamental questions that every worldview has to answer. This is why it's a, another religion. It answers the question of origins. Where do we come from? If you are a Christian, you say, well, we come from God. God created all things. But what does a secular society and this woke ideology say? No, we come from random, unguided evolution and chance. 
So what are the values that are going to come out of that sort of starting presupposition? It has a different view of sin. What went wrong with the world? How does it answer that question? Well, what went wrong with the world as Christians is that, well, the fall, sin, we're all inherently sinful and we do evil acts because of that. But in the woke ideology, what went wrong is not sin, is that there's disparities, that there's different outcomes. And what's the, what, how can we make things right? What's our redemption then? Well, we have to get rid of those disparities. We have to create a radically egalitarian, equal society, right? And how do we do that? By reparations and affirmative action and all these other things, which I'll get into. And then what's its eschatology or its view of the end times? What's the consummation? It's that we will reach this, somehow how we'll reach this um, man-made utopia where everyone is perfectly equal, right? That's wokeness's eschatology, so to speak. It's a whole other religion. And it answers these fundamental questions of a worldview radically different to a biblical worldview. So I'm going to illustrate this using six um, markers of this ideology. So let's start off. <clears throat> Firstly, it's comprehensive and it's revolutionary. Right? Karl Marx, his original philosophy upon which woke ideology is actually based on, and this is not me just saying this, woke ideologues have, have openly admitted this, that they're using Karl Marx's ideology to build their ideology. Okay? Um, was also revolutionary. Right? It was radically actually evangelistic. Karl Marx actually says this. He says, the philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Marxism is a theology of action. Ironically, Christian, Christianity is also supposed to be. Um, but Marxism has this radical aspect to it. And it's not only just radical, but it's comprehensive. It wants to overtake every single aspect of society and life, right? This is why you can't just adopt parts of woke ideology. It comes as a wholesale deal because it's a whole all-encompassing, comprehensive way of making sense of the world, okay? Um, and the fact that wokeness comes and stems from this comprehensive worldview is also why all these various, what we'd call leftist sort of causes, such as uh, critical race theory, LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera, all seem to be linked. And oftentimes it's the same group of people who are ascribing to all of these different ideologies. It's because they're sharing one single worldview. Let me illustrate this for you using a very popular one, BLM, right? So Black Lives Matter. Uh, this is from their statement of, of beliefs, which was actually taken down from their website after they started getting some pushback. But this is archived on the internet. Thank you, Google. Um, they said this, that we foster, this is Black Lives Matter. They said that we foster a queer affirming network. Wait, 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 what does that have to do with Black Lives? We, when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from, uh, from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that in um, all in the world are heterosexual. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Wait, what does that have to do with civil rights for colored people? I, why are they wanting to disrupt the nuclear family structure? Right? It's all connected in here. Let me further illustrate this. So this is um, from the Movement uh, for Black Lives, which is an associated um, organization. They said, while this platform is focused on domestic policies, we know that patriarchy, exploitive capitalism, so they're against capitalism, militarism, by that they mean that nations have militaries and defend their borders, and white supremacy knows no borders. We stand in solidarity with our international family against the ravages of global capitalism, anti-black racism, human-made climate change, War, expectation, they're talking all of these things connected in to this one cause. Why is that? It's because, again, they're sharing a common worldview. 
right? So we have to understand this woke religion as it is. It's a whole religious worldview that encapsulates a whole bunch of values. And what we're dealing with is actually Marxism 2.0. Like I said, it's based on Karl Marx's original ideology, now taken and applied to the social sphere. Karl Marx was, a, was primarily dealing with e economy and economics. They took his ideology now and applied it to social issues. So how then should we do it? Well, you can only defeat a comprehensive worldview with another comprehensive worldview. You happen to know one? Christianity. It's a comprehensive worldview, right? Uh, Christianity is actually supposed to impact every area of your life. God's word is supposed to guide every area of your life. Uh, Francis Schaeffer says this way, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in the light of that truth. We have to work really hard at that. I can't unpack all of it here, but you have to start thinking in those terms that the Bible, God's word, my faith has something to say about fill in the blank. How I think about education, how I think about business, how I think about politics, how I think about law, how I think about family, how I think about anything, art, movies. It has something to say, and we need to apply our Christian faith in all of these ways. Okay, I'm gonna play a quick video here. Um, just to illustrate the second marker of woke ideology, which is group identity and tribalism. I warn you guys, it's a little bit jarring. <laughs> oh, I think my audio just died. Battery 80%. Dealing with that, it's not going to be this. Sorry. Let's try that again. All white people are racist. So <laughs> I put this up because I really want any white person in the room to know up front that this is what we're dealing with, that it's not going to be this coddling of white tears and what that looks like and to discuss, oh, maybe some of us have worked it out. No, you're always going to be racist, actually. So even when you're on your path to trying to figure out how to be a better human being, um, because I believe that white people are born into not being human, like that actually, instead of people of color and black folks being dehumanized, that actually everyone is dehumanized off rip within white supremacy, that y'all are born into a life to not be human, and that's what y'all are taught to do, to be demons. So in this particular way, white people are all racist. So I just want y'all to know that. All right. Do y'all hear that? And now I look out and see that a lot of you, my brothers, are more melanin challenged than myself, except for my friend there. <laughs> uh, but I don't believe that y'all are all racist just because you lack melanin. That's not true. That's not biblical. But that's where this woke ideology applied to race kind of leads to. It's this guilt by group identity. Because you are white, you are guilty. Because you are cisgendered, you are guilty. Because you are Christian, you are guilty. Because you're male, you're, like, you just fill in the blank of all of these different group identities that are seen to be as the oppressors in society. This is group identity. Right? You ever heard of identity politics? That's kind of where that's rooted in. It's basically assigning guilt just based on your identity as a Christian, male, heterosexual, you know, whatever, right? Um, because those are the categories that are seen as oppressive, okay? And it leads to tribalism. And this thing is, is in our universities. In 2018, back then it was called Ryerson, 
had a white privilege conference where they were spouting this. That video was from 2016. So it's been going on quite a while um, and even before that. So group identity being primary, white people are automatically guilty in this sort of uh, ideology. And critical race theory, I, like, just ironically, the, it, it masquerades as compassion, saying that it's against racism. But what are we doing when we say that white people are inherently evil because they're white? You're being a racist. <laughs> like, it's, that's the irony of this ideology. It's actually racism in the opposite direction. It doesn't actually solve the problem of racism. It makes it worse, right? So how then shall we live in light of this? Well, the Bible has something to say. It says that the ground is actually level at the foot of the cross, that we have unity in two ways. You know that? You have unity with everybody who's a human being in one of two ways, or perhaps two of two ways. Firstly, in Adam, right? You're all part of the human race. There's one race, it's the human race, right? And we're all fallen in Adam as well, right? Now, if you're a Christian, we also have a second ground of unity, which is beautiful, it's in Christ. You're in Adam, we're in Christ. And in Christ, we are all on level ground. We all come to the cross empty-handed as sinners. And that is the grounds by which Paul actually argues for unity within the church in Ephesians 2. Right? He doesn't say, hey, hey, Jews and Gentiles, like, here's how y'all need to work it out. You Gentiles need to um, pay reparations to the Jews for oppressing them. No, he doesn't say that. He says, no, no, no. Christ has broken down the dividing wall. How? By nailing it to, to the cross. Right? That in Christ, there's neither what? Jew nor Gentile. Right? That all are one in Christ. That's the real grounds for reconciliation. That's the reconciliation we need to proclaim as Christians. Okay, moving on quickly. Truth and language. Right? Uh, this is an important part of woke ideology. Um, it, so this is from a woke author. She says this, the idea of objectivity in Western intellectual traditions is problematic for many reasons. And to think that their universal truths perpetuates a particular kind of able-bodied white cisgender male logic. There again, you see the identities, right? So what is this person saying? They're saying basically that there's no objective truth. They're saying that all truth is relative. And that when you assert that there is a real truth, that you are being a oppressive, able-bodied cisgender, blah, 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 right? Um, this is not true though. Um, you, you probably have encountered this if you've gone through DEI training. Anybody here in your companies have gone through diversity, equity, and inclusion training? Okay, not yet. That's a thing in the city, and it probably will start to become a thing up here too. All right? Uh, let me give you an example of what is in the curriculum of some of these diversity, equity, inclusion curriculums. So Judith Cass, she's one of the teachers of this. She says that objective, rational, linear thinking, controlled emotions, the scientific method, Quantitative research are all defining marks of what? Racism and white culture. Did you know that? But this is what is being taught. Um, phrases such as in the individual has primary responsibility or working hard brings success or plan for the future or delayed gratification. All of these apparently are signs that you are a white supremacist. This ideology does not lead to good places. Okay. Um, so let's talk about that. The fact that woke ideology doesn't believe in objective truth, that comes from its postmodern presuppositions. Postmodernism believes in relative truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. You ever heard that? That's relative truth, right? Now, is that, uh, is that absolutely true though? No, right? It's a ridiculous presupposition. 
But that is the foundation of wokeness's epistemology or theory of knowledge. Right? So in this system, knowledge is a social construct and it has skepticism about meta-narratives and objective truth because it believes that if you say you have the truth, you are asserting dominant power. Right? And that's seen as oppressive. Um, Timon Klein, actually I skipped this one just for the sake of time. So due to the lack of a standard for objective truth in the worldview, woke ideologies often twist facts to fit their narrative. Remember, for the woke ideo ideologue, truth, objective truth is a fiction. They don't believe in that. So then what actually becomes the most important thing is not the truth, but actually the narrative. So everything needs to support the narrative. And since language is just a means of gaining power, then they use language to manipulate and hence the emphasis on changing vocabulary and controlling the way people think. So think about that. What are some words that have been introduced into our society? I just said one of them recently, cisgendered. What is that? That didn't exist 10 years ago, that term. They're inventing a new term to encapsulate something, right? It's, and it's saying basically that, well, there's actually multiple ways that you might identify your gender, right? Cisgender is one of them. Um, by using language, they change the language, they can change the way that society thinks. Um, let's illustrate the, the woke uh, narrative with a local example. Now, a little bit of a warning, this is going to be a controversial topic, but I'll try to deal with this graciously. Um, I'm sure if you've heard of the controversy about the Canadian residential school. Right? Um, now, the original story was based off of GPR, ground penetrating radar, which found what looked to be like mass graves. Right? Um, now, that was in Kamloops Indian Residential School, uh, where it was purported that the unmarked graves of hundreds of Native children were found outside of this residential school. And the story, the way it goes, is this is normative for all of these residential schools. Sounds terrible, right? Tragic. Um, now, what do we find when we actually look at the investigations on this? Well, we find this, and this is from several different sources um, that have come to light that the GPR actually detected what is the remains of septic canals drainage systems, um, and this is, uh, has been um, verified in several different ways. For example, researcher Nina Green, she testifies this way, there's no way that GPR can distinguish between a filled-in septic tank, trench, and a filled-in grave. The GPR profiles will look the same. Actually, a former student from the Kamloops school, Emma Baker, she admitted in an interview to CTV that when she attended the Kamloops school from 1952 to 1956, she and her friends actually made up stories about the graves in the apple orchard. And actually the chief, I can't pronounce his name, sorry, um, affirmed that it was not a mass grave. Not one single body has been found or produced from the excavations that have been done. And the public actually has been barred from entry into the site and even the airspace has been restricted. Why is this? If we're actually after truth and reconciliation, why not investigate it thoroughly? Um, now, this is not to say that there's never ever been any injustices done against residential you know, and, and indigenous people. Of course, I know that because why? Everybody's sinful. Obviously, there's been injustices happening. Now, does it mean though that the narrative that's being spun to say that well, all Indian residential schools were were inherently racist and um, killing mass killing children? Is that true? I have my doubts here because it seems like the evidence doesn't support it, and the investigations are being barred. So we need to be a little bit more uh, discerning as Christians for everything that's being put up to us. Actually, this was uh, a very good way of, um, of summarizing it here by Mark Milk. He says this, for example, even by the Canadian government's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, their own estimate 
when the proportion of registered First Nations children in residential schools was at its peak, the proportion was about 30%, 31%. Thus, even though that was high, uh, the high watermark for attendance, and even if one accepts the commission's narrative that all residential schools made victims of all students, right, which probably is not the case, it's still a leap to attribute modern day social and economic outcomes for all Aboriginal Canadians to an educational model where less than one third attended at its peak. So again, as Christians, the facts matter. Truth really matters in reconciliation. That's the irony of this truth and reconciliation project. We need to actually know the real truth to know what type of reconciliation actually needs to happen. Okay? So I love the way that Vody Bakum uh, concludes. This is um, in regards to the US context, but I think as application here too, he says, simply put, we must be careful when we hear and or draw conclusions. We have to reject simplistic univariate analyses as a basis for sweeping accusations of bias. And you know, God has something to say about it. In Zechariah 7 verse 9, it says to render true judgments, right? That we as Christians are people of truth. We follow a guy who is the way, the truth, and the life. So truth matters. We need to know truth in these issues. So to recap a little bit, no objective truth in woke ideology. They, they use standpoint epistemology, which is basically if you're a person of, of color, you all of a sudden need to be elevated above a person who is not of color just because you are a part of that oppressed identity group, right? And then the third thing, which we're going to talk a little bit about here, is change the narrative, change the language, you change the world. Right? That they believe that if you can change the way people talk, you can change the world. And you know what? They're right. Just look around at our culture. What has happened? The language has changed. The way that you are allowed to speak. This is why Bill C-11 and C-4 are very important to the culture war. It's restricting how you can speak. Because if you can restrict how people speak, you change the culture. Actually, George Orwell in his book 1984 knew this in the Ministry of Truth. What was one of the things that he was tasked to do was actually to delete words from the vocabulary. Because if you do that, you restrict how people can speak, then you restrict how they can think. And that's how you change a society. So that's related to cancel culture. That's wokeness's defense. It's its apologetics. See, this is a worldview, it's a religion. It has its own apologetics and defense. Cancel culture. When you're canceled for not saying the right thing or saying the wrong thing, that's wokeness's apologetics. It's defending its ideology, right? And activism, it's its offense. That's its great commission. Why is it that a lot of these leftist liberals are so activists in the political realm? That's part of it. That's part of Marx's whole vision is it wants to change the world, right? So there's an activist dimension to it that's kind of like wokeness's great commission. <clears throat> I'll skip over this, but uh, this is another example from uh, an author. But let's skip to how we should live in response to that. Well, we need to tell the truth boldly. As Christians, we need to be committed to telling the truth. Be a bulldog for truth. Uphold the ninth commandment and don't bear falsehood. Right? Simple as that. Like, if we committed to doing that, you could change the world. But why have we gotten to the point that we're at today? It's because in generations past, where the cost was a lot lower for telling the truth, we stayed silent. Now the cost is a lot higher. Like, you tell the truth, in some cases, you might lose your job. You might face, like, real social repercussions. You might be hated. But listen, things don't get better by continuing to believe lies or tell lies. And they definitely don't get, a, get better by staying silent. There's a famous saying that says, 
you know, what is necessary for evil to prevail? It's for good men to do nothing. Right? You guys are good men. Tell the truth boldly. Be unapologetic about the truth. When the culture tells you they need to affirm 27 different genders, you say, no, no, no. God has given us the truth that he made us male and female, and that's good. It's good. We can get more into that in the Q&A if you want. There's power in the truth, and that's why Satan wants to suppress it so desperately. Life and death are truly in the power of the tongue. And that's, I don't mean that in a word of faith, prosperity, gospel kind of way. Right? I mean that in the sense that like, when we speak truth, that has real power. Especially when it comes from a spirit-filled person. Fourth marker of work uh, ideology is systemic oppression and victimhood. And this comes from Marxism directly. Marx says this, hitherto every form of society has been based, as we have already seen, on the antagonism of the oppressing and the oppressed. Therefore, all of history hitherto, you like that word, existing society is the history of class struggles, free man and slave, lord and serf, guild and master, guild master and journeyman, sorry. In a word, oppressor and oppressed. That's a huge marker of woke ideology. It'll split society up into oppressed and oppressor. Class society. Let's skip over that. And ironically enough, that's a sort of like um, classes, that class society of oppressed, oppressed, oppressor is sort of um, a caste system, kind of like Hinduism, right? Where you've got the high class, high caste, sorry, and then the low caste. And the high caste have all the sway and power in society, and the low caste don't. That's kind of similar to how woke ideology works. And it does this by assuming that oppression is everywhere. That's the lens through which it sees the world. And the oppressed are, works, are wokeness's saintly class. Meaning that if you are part of an oppressed minority, you can do no wrong. And you are the one who everybody has to listen to. <clears throat> That's an inherently bad way to run things. Because just because you're part, you even might be legitimately oppressed and, 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 and um, underprivileged. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have more insight. Yeah, question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or take that to the abortion debate. No uterus, no opinion. Is that true, though? Does that mean that I don't have an opinion on whether or not babies should be killed in the womb? No. Right? That's this ideology played out in the pro life and pro choice argument in society. This ideology is pervasive everywhere, right? Um, I'm going to have to skip over some things just for the sake of time. But let's go here to why it sees it this way in terms of oppression and victimhood. It's fixated on disparities. However, not all disparities are unjust. So, for example, some of you guys have way more height than I do. Is that unjust? No, because I've got more melanin than you do, right? Not unjust. That's just the way that God made it. Some disparities just are, right? So not all disparities are unjust, but woke ideology sees all disparity as, a, as inherent evidence of some injustice, okay? And that's where it gets it wrong. It's conflating equality and equity. Let me explain those two terms, okay? Equality means this. It's biblical. Equality has to do with the equality of value, worth, and dignity that every human being possesses as the image bearer of God. That's good and biblical. That's true. We want equality. But wokeness confuses that with equity. And that's a word that you often hear, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Equity is the concept, not of equality, but of sameness. It desires the flattening of all distinctions between people, such as sex and gender roles. It's also called radical egalitarianism. It aims for equality of outcomes not just equality of opportunities. Very important distinction. 
What we as Christians should be for is actually equality of opportunities. Equality of outcomes, though, is not always going to be true or even just, right? Um, so, for example, God created you a certain way. If you are like me, um, of Asian descent, who is vertically challenged, it does not mean I should have an equal outcome to Shaquille O'Neal on the basketball field, right? That's just not how it's made. Like some differences are just are, and they're part of just how we're made, and they're okay, right? They're not necessarily a, a, a signal of injustice. So how should we live? We must be careful as Christians about jumping onto every woke narrative pushed forward by the culture, not dismissing the legitimate concerns, but being discerning about the narrative that's being pushed. Okay, so a balanced sort of approach there. <clears throat> Second to last one. So perpetual guilt and grievance is another marker. It assumes perpetual guilt, and that's a, its doctrine of sin. You're putting this in a religious framework. Okay, so because you are white, you're always going to be racist, as you heard on the, the, the video, right? That's its doctrine of original sin, basically. However, Paul, like I said, didn't tell first century Christians to go around playing a game of grievances. Right? That's not the way Christianity thinks. Paul actually says, that, no, no, no. Our unity is one in Adam and our common humanity, but also in Christ, in redeemed humanity. Right? And this game of perpetual guilt and grievances, it actually doesn't produce anything good. Um, it's played often with the slavery thing. Right? That the narrative is that, well, all white people enslaved black people. That's not actually even true. Um, if you just look at the statistics, right? So actually the word slave comes from Slav. The Slavs are not black people. <laughs> Right? But they were enslaved so much that they started using the name Slav to mean slave. Okay? Um, at least a million Europeans were enslaved by North Africans. Right? So slavery doesn't just go in one direction. All societies have practiced slavery. Why? Because sin is pervasive. And sin is everywhere. This is why slavery, we find it in every single culture. Actually, China is one of the biggest slave markets even to this day. Right? I love this quote by, um, by Francis Bacon. He says, a person who broods on revenge only worsens his own wounds. His injuries would heal if he would only refrain. And that's the irony of a lot of the actual injustices that were done against people of color, that it actually um, doesn't help with the healing process by continuing to bring up grievances and continuing to pick at the wound. What we actually need, what the Bible prescribes as our cure is forgiveness. Right? Perpetual guilt and grievance narratives are simply un unforgiveness. But the Bible tells us, actually, the gospel calls us to forgive. Why? Because we've been greatly forgiven too. That's the only way the society moves on from those sorts of racial tensions that have built up over the centuries. It's not by holding on to grudges. You look at the Middle East, a lot of the conflict in the Middle East is what? It's generational grudges. That's what happens. But the cure for it is actually forgiveness. And that forgiveness, this is the power of this message here. You know who has the, the power to forgive? We do. Because given to us on the cross, each one of you, you are greatly forgiven by a great and gracious Savior. My sin was so black, so heinous against a holy God, but he forgave my sin. How would I ever hold someone else's sin against them. I'll be like that wicked servant in the, in the parable, strangling my fellow servant for 10 bucks when I've been forgiven 10 million, right? Uh, last one. 
Blame shifting and reparations is another marker of woke ideology. And it's basically their, their version of penance and atonement, right? So let me explain what they are. Reparations is payments or fines exacted upon persons considered to be part of an oppressor majority group, um, paid to the oppressed minority group. Affirmative action is a policy that is enacted in order to favor or give a leg up to people who are considered members of a historically marginalized or oppressed group. Now, again, this comes back to how wokeness answers that question of how do we make things right? Remember, they see the problem being disparities. The way that you make it right is you even everything. So how do you do that? By coercively either forcing reparations or taking affirmative action. So one of these example of this is like for college enrollment. Did you know that just statistically right now in North America, it's harder as a white male to get into Ivy League colleges? Why? Because of affirmative action. They're giving preferential treatment to people of um, you know, minority statuses. That's actually not right. That's unjust. Thomas Sowell has a good question. He says, have we reached the ultimate stage of absurdity where some people are held responsible for things that happened before they were born, while other people are not held responsible for what they themselves are doing today? Personal responsibility is lost on our generation. Like our culture breeds a culture of entitlement, right? Of abdicating responsibility. It's never your fault. It's always somebody else's fault. But that's actually a victim mentality. It doesn't never lead someone to live a more victorious and positive life. That actually keeps them down. That's the irony of this woke ideology. It says that it's elevating people out of these oppressive situations, but actually it gives them an ideology that keeps them in the hole. I come from a third world country. I've seen this played out. That a lot of times poverty is actually a mindset. Uh, Mike, you know this, working with CAP. That it's a whole way of thinking that you need to change before you can actually come out of that poverty cycle. And woke ideology traps people in that same line of thinking. So why is it so popular? Why, it, like, after I've laid this out, you guys hopefully by now agree this is terrible. Terrible ideology, terrible idea. Why are we going full speed ahead on this? Well, I think one of the reasons is because social justice is big business. These are three of the top... Um, anti-racism or critical race theory authors and speakers, and um, they're raking in the dough, right? So um, this lady here, Robin D'Angelo, she charges 15,000 per event to speak. She's not even the highest paid. Um, Tacey Coates, he charges 30 to $40,000 per event. And the book sales are through the roof, especially after the riots of BLM, right? Um, it's big business, really. And this plays out actually even in the BLM movement. Um, I actually just saw this week that BLM is filing potentially for bankruptcy. This is after they've received over 90 million US dollars in donations. Where did all that money go to? Well, it went to fund the various different mansions that the BLM owners um, have. Um, greed. You know, this shouldn't surprise us. The Bible told us this. It said that the love of money is the root of all evil. Um, and this is just fact. You can go check, fact check all of these things if you have all doubts. But how should we live in light of this? Biblically, we should live this way. That showing favoritism, even to a suffering group, is actually denounced throughout Scripture. Scripture says, don't show partiality to the rich nor to the poor. Right? That we need to have true justice. Because that contradicts the very 
um, character of God. God is a God of justice, right? So Christian charity and compassion is very different to this woke sort of compassion um, because it's based on objective standards in God's word of truth and justice. So let me give you a little bit of a recap between the differences between social justice and biblical justice. Social justice is this, it's deconstructing traditional systems and structures deemed to be oppressive and redistributing power and resources um, from oppressors to their victims to, to attain equality of outcome. Biblical justice, however, is this. It's truthful, it's direct, it's impartial, it's restorative and retributive, proportional, and it's limited. And your handouts have a little bit more explanation about that, okay? So let me close off here, just talking a little bit about how do we live as Christians? Um, well, it's true that John 18, 36, Jesus does say that his kingdom is not of this world. And that's been variously used by various different churches and, and Christians to say, well, that means that we should never be involved in public things, in um, worldly things, in politics, in the culture wars, all these things, right? Because Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. However, I believe this is a gross misinterpretation, misapplication of this text. And I'll explain why. Um, okay, just before even getting into the Greek of it, because it's not of this world doesn't mean that it's not in this world. We have to ask the question, what does he mean by off? Also, Jesus himself says that um, his kingdom has come. So, for example, in Matthew 4, he says, at the beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is near. And as you progress through Matthew, in Matthew 12, Jesus is casting out demons. And he says that if I cast out demons um, by the hand of God, then you know that the kingdom is upon you. So he says that during his ministry. And then by the end of Matthew's gospel, after he's resurrected, he says what? All authority. And heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore we go and make disciples. So Christ's kingdom has come and is here. And is a present reality that has implications on this world. And so what does Jesus then mean by his kingdom not being of this world? Well, let's look at the verse itself. He says, my kingdom is not of, that Greek participle is ek, of this world. Ek in Greek can mean of or, or from or deriving its source. So when Jesus says it's not, his kingdom is not of this world, it doesn't derive its source like from this world's kingdoms or this world system, right? And we see that from the bold part of the verse here. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Just like the kingdoms of this world attain authority and power through violence, my kingdom would have been doing that, but it's not. So therefore, we don't use violence. This is why Jesus stopped Peter, for example, from cutting off the guy's ear, right? Christians are not called to violence. That's how the kingdom is not of this world. But we do fight. But our weapons are not carnal, right? They're mighty, they're spiritual weapons that cast down ideologies and every lofty thought that is opposed to Christ, right? <clears throat> so we need, our call to action is this, that we need spirit-given courage. Um, I've covered a lot, and this can be really scary. Uh, especially for some of you, you might face some real repercussions in school, in work, and wherever you are, right? Like speaking out and acting in accordance with Christian values today is likely to cost you something. But you know what? That's kind of biblical, right? Um, that is what we're called to is a costly discipleship. Jesus' altar call, so to speak, in Luke 9 was to what? Take up your cross and follow him. It's a cost of following Christ. And we need to be courageous because over and over, God's word calls us to courage. It says, don't fear, you have good courage. Right? Think of Joshua, for example. And it's interesting that in Revelation 21, on that damnation list, cowardly 
lead that list. It says, but fast the cowardly, the faithless, the desperate, etc. Their portion is in the lake of fire. Why? Because cowardliness should not mark the people of God. Proverbs says that the wicked flee when no one pursues. That's actually why I don't go jogging. <laughs> but the righteous are as bold as lions. All right? The righteous are bold as lions. If you guys are Christians, you follow Christ, you follow the line of Judah. We are called to be bold, strong, especially as men. Courage. Courage. That's what it's going to take for Christians to stand strong and stand faithfully in a culture that's so radically opposed to us. Okay. I'll end it there. Here are some recommended resources that you can look into more. Again, like I said, there's no way I can get into detail on all these topics. This is an overview, but these are some good books that'll get into a little bit more meat. Um, for stuff on politics and government, you can look at a Christian citizenship guide that's published by ARPA, which is a great Christian organization that does a lot of um, advocacy on behalf of Christians in politics. Great organization. Rule of Kings by Joseph Booth is also good too. For general cultural issues, you can check out these two uh, books. And then for issues of wokeness and social justice, these three are very good. Uh, Bodhi's book, Fault Lines, is great. Uh, a little bit more of a dense read. This one, Confronting Truth Without com uh, Compromise, um, sorry, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams, great first name. Um, that's a good small group curriculum. I actually went through it with my small group, asked questions and answers at the end of every chapter, very readable and very accessible. I'd highly recommend that one. The other one, Christianity Awokeness, is a good introduction as well. Um, but that's basically it. Thank you guys for your attention. Awesome. All right, the way we'll do this is just raise your hand. I'll call on you, ask you a question. I'll repeat it for everybody to hear, and then I'll try to give an answer. Um, please make sure to send all of the easy questions to me and all the hard questions to Pastor Daryl. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's get started. Um, first question. All right, Mike. Near the beginning, you had a rush duty quote. And <laughs> um, on that slide, from that slide, what would you say is the God of our current society? Mm. What would you say is the ultimate value? Yeah. That we, we've switched the living God for what? Yeah, absolutely. So good question. The question is, uh, what's the God of this society now that has been secularized? I made the argument that we've not gone neutral. We've actually just changed religions. The culture has changed religion. So what is the God of this religion, this new religion? I'd say twofold. Um, ultimately, it's Satan. Those are the only two choices for gods, really, that you have is the true God or the God of this age, Satan, right? Um, but on a, a more practical level, it's actually self. The God of secularism is the self. Look at the ideology. A lot of it is this expressive individual asserting your truth, for example. It's the self. It's all centered on the self, which makes sense because actually Satanism, Satanists don't actually worship Satan. They worship self. You know that? That, that cult of Satanism. They, if you ask the Satanists who they worship, they, they don't say Satan, they say the self. Which makes sense because, you know, Lucifer's sin that, that he felt was pride, wanting to be like God, right? He wanted to be the object of worship. The God of secularism is the is self. And it makes sense even in, in terms of what Paul says is true of, of, of the, um, the unregenerate, right? That in Romans 1, he says that they exchanged what? Worship of the creator for the created. That's always how every non-Christian worldview will work. It will supplement the true God, the creator, for some element of creation. In terms of secularism and wokeness, it's the self. Yeah. Go for it. 
I was I was kind of thinking about uh, your your comment on uh, objectivity. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, is it possible to to get to get to the point where there's absolute objectivity? Yeah. Like, like consider considering we all have our individual like worldviews. Mm -hmm. like, 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 it all depends how my my world that I can want to go with it. But yeah. Like, we all have our individual ways of, of viewing the world. That you're, because they're all unique. Yeah. So, is it possible to get? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'll try to repeat the question. If I misrepresent you, let me know. Okay. So, so the question is: Is it actually possible to get to objective truth, basically, right? Like because everybody has their own sort of uh, reasoning and um, viewpoints and all these different aspects of subjectivity, basically, right? How do we know that we've arrived? at objective truth, right? Is that fair? Okay, awesome. Um, so how do we arrive at objective truth? Well, truth, like God's truth anyways, real truth, is revelational. It's not relative, okay? So subjective truth is relative. It's like my truth is your, my truth, your truth is your truth, right? Objective truth though is revelational. We don't create it, it's revealed to us, okay? So, how do we know that we are at objective truth? Well, there's two ways that God reveals truth through two, his two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, right? We have God's book of scripture, which is objectively true. That's his authoritative, infallible word to us that speaks to every area of life, not just the spiritual and pietistic life, but also the you know, public sphere, all of the other spheres, okay? Um, so that's one source of truth that we know for sure, right? The second source of truth which is also sure, but our interpretation of it sometimes is not, and same thing for scripture, is nature, right? That God speaks also through nature. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, that the, that the nature itself is speaking something to us about God, about his eternal Godhead, it says in Romans 1, right? Um, so there's two sources of objective truth in that sense, and they're both revelational. They're revealed to us by God, either through his written word or through his creation. Um, in terms of how do we get to that truth, it's different. In terms of subjective truth, you create it and you make it up. Whereas objective truth, you don't make it up, you find it, you search for it, you examine it, you test it. This is where the scientific method comes from. It comes from Christianity. No other worldview gives you the, the, the required basis for science. It's actually only in a Christian worldview that you have a basis for science. Um, because... Christianity says, no, we don't make up truth. Truth is revealed to us in either nature or in scripture. Is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Go for it. Okay. Why do people feel like all white people are racist? How can they not see the irony in this statement? So the question is, uh, why is it that, you know, critical race theorists and so on are saying that all white people are racist, right? Um, fundamentally, it comes down to the worldview. So let me explain what a worldview is. Um, worldviews are like belly buttons. Everyone has one, but not a lot of people spend a lot of time examining their own, far less examining other people's, right? Um, you, everybody has a worldview, and a worldview functions like a pair of glasses. It's a lens through which you see the world. Right? So we're often looking through our worldview, not at our worldview. Right? And the people who are saying that all white people are racist, they're looking through their worldview that tells them, that gives them these different starting presuppositions, right? these starting assumptions that lead them to say that. But the reason why they don't see the irony of it is because they never take off the lens and look at it. Is that a helpful illustration? 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, good to you. You take off the glasses all the time. That's good. That's, and you should apply that to also your worldview, right? Even as Christians, take off your glasses and examine them every so often. Start to think, okay, do I really have a biblical worldview? Like, what are the things that I assume? And are they in concordance with Scripture and what it talks about this topic? That's a way that you examine your own worldview, right? <laughs> I'm not an advocate of navel gazing, so, you know. <laughs> Question. Yes, um, you pulled or at least highlighted the book by Joe. Yeah. And, um, I'm always interested in how practical yeah. it is to confront those things. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're looking for the most part. Right. Would Joe Boone for himself have examples of which participate Sure. So I'm being asked to be an apologist for Joe Boot. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, the question was uh, for, for Joe Boot, and uh, we had a little bit of a, a discussion here. The brother was bringing out the point that um, some of these authors are post-millennial um, who are advocating for you know God's law being applied to society, and uh, you know advocating for Christians to be involved in influencing politics, those sort of things. So his question was, well, do you have examples of like, guys like Joe Boot and others who have practically done things, right? Now, my goal here is not to be an apologist for Joe Boot. We're not personal friends. I find some of his resources helpful, and he helps me to think in different ways. And it's, by the way, good to read different authors, even from authors that you don't agree with, who are still faithful brothers who love the Lord, love the word, because they'll challenge you to think in different ways. That if you just read people who you already agree with, you're never really challenged to think outside of that box. I'll just say that as a side note, right? Um, also, I'll say that I'm not going to be an apologist for Joe Hood because I don't know all of his life. But I will say this in terms of just answering the question directly that you answered. I do know that Joe Hood was instrumental, for example, in starting, uh, what's the ministry name? Um, escaping me now. No, it's, a, it's not adoption, it's... No, so there's the Ezra Institute, but there's, oh, Safe Families. So Safe Families is a, um, a ministry that Joe Boot started at Westminster, which is this church, um, that basically provides sort of temporary housing for, for kids who would otherwise end up in the foster care system. And they do that through activating Christian families in local churches to become these safe families. And they go through a whole training process and approval and all that stuff. And it's a way that they're practically making sure that kids don't end up in the secular um, foster care system. The church also gets involved in counseling with the, the family that needs help, basically. And it's a way that the church is stepping in to practically lend a hand to people um, in those ways. Also, he's been very active in political activism and so on, and writing MPs and all that, uh, and all those things through basically, you know, seeing what he's doing publicly. But I don't know the man's personal life and so on, so I'm not going to be an apologist for him in that way. But just saying that... Um, I don't think you need to be a post-millennialist to be involved and care about where the culture is going. Um, now, if you are, great. But I, I have friends who are pre-millennialists and amillennialists and who differ on a lot of different things. But we can all agree on this one principle, that if we don't base public policies and how our culture is directed on God's truth, what's the alternative? Not good. <laughs> We've been living it, right? We have to. That's the, that's the fundamental thing that we must agree on. As Christians, whether you disagree on eschatology and all these other things, that's fine. We can debate that. Um, we're not going to solve it because it's been debated for centuries. <laughs> um, but you should be able to agree on that. That God's word is the only standard that we can base 
um, public policies, on law, on every area of life, because that is the standard of truth. Every Christian should hold to that. I hope that's non, not um, confusing. Yeah. Just a follow-up yeah. question. My point being that in a practical sense, yeah. like when confronted, mm-hmm. not as an individual, but just by the media as an example, who yeah. are as a church of believers who do not hold to uh, cultural Marxism, wokeness, etc. But we're being indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, society's being indoctrinated. Our, our kids in schools are being indoctrinated by this uh, yeah. system. How do we practically respond? We can, mm-hmm. I certainly have discussions with the odd person, but sometimes those discussions can be, you know, yeah. that have a conflict. Yeah. Strong disagreement. Absolutely. And I'm I'm questioning what should a church do when faced with these things that are presented in the media? Um, you know, as individuals, we're not for the most part dealing with other people. So in order to bring this change about, what do we do practically to do that? Excellent question. So I'm glad you asked that because that's a part of the presentation. I had to cut out for the sake of time. Okay. <laughs> so that's good that you're asking that. So yeah, you know, like you guys prefer. Uh, uh, the question, I'll try to answer it succinctly, is what can we practically do, right? Just on the ground, give me like basically practical advice. You know, you guys like that, right? Um, what can we do as Christians, as churches to start what we're arguing for here, that we should be involved in, in the culture and seek to change it and influence it as Christians? Well, practically speaking, um, I'll give you a couple of different thoughts um, that I'm trying to distill on the fly. Um, scripture says that one, judgment must begin in the house of the Lord. We've got to get our own house in order. Um, the church has dropped the ball massively. Now, when I say the church, I don't mean this church specifically. I mean, generally, broadly, the church within you know, North American society, Western societies, has kind of dropped the ball on this. Um, and I think a big part of that has been the failure to disciple people in thinking biblically on these things. The thing is, you're always being discipled. It's just a matter of who's discipling you and for what kingdom, right? And when the church neglected to disciple people on, let's say, how to think about education, how to think about law, how to think about politics, how to think about, you know, raising a family, all these things, it's not that they weren't discipled. They were discipled by the world. And that's how compromise crept in. So I think a starting point, a real practical thing is in the church, we need to start teaching and talking about this. This is a great, like, by the way, first step here. I'm very happy that I was called into and hopefully it was helpful. Um, but the church needs to take up that role. Um, your elders, Pastor Daryl and your, your elder board, they're tasked actually with teaching doctrine and guarding doctrine, not just only on like justification, which they need to do and continue to do, but also on all these other things of how do we think Christianly about X, Y, and Z. That when a congregant comes in and has a question about like, hey, my, you know, my boss is wanting me to fly the, the, the flag this month or whatever, right? Like you can come in and give good, wise counsel. And you should go to, by the way, your pastor, primarily for that. I'm not your pastor, right? Go to your pastors. They're tasked by God to shepherd your soul. So that's one starting point practically is in the church, we need to get our own house in order first. Um, secondly, individually as Christians, right? That you, like I said on the previous slide, need to, Apply yourself to learn a biblical worldview on how to think about all these different aspects. And it will not come overnight. This is a long-term project. Don't think that when I talk about this, that I'm thinking that this will even happen in my lifetime. Like, we need to stop thinking so short-term and start thinking generationally. Because guess what? Our culture didn't get here overnight. It took a while, right? Some of you guys are 
I'm not gonna say old, experienced enough <laughs> to remember when this culture was more Christianized, right? It didn't happen overnight. And change is not gonna happen overnight either, right? We need to start thinking long-term. And how do you think generationally about, okay, maybe our generation won't do it, but the next generation will get better. And the next generation can perhaps build off of that. Well, when churches and Christians start thinking generationally, they start thinking in terms of, well, what can I do that would impact not just immediacy of this culture, but in the future? So for example, one of the impulses that Christendom brought was building schools, education. Look at all the Ivy League, um, schools. They all started off as Christian institutions. That's a, that's a fundamental um, in our DNA. And I think it would be good for churches to start taking that up back up again. And think about, okay, well, how do we impact the next generation? One of the primary ways we can do that is through education. So whether that be starting a, a Christian school as a church or supporting local Christian schools or supporting homeschooling or whatever it is, supplementing the schooling that's happening, that's one practical way on the ground that you can help to to see cultural change. Because guess what? The, the young ones, the kids, are gonna be the next generation. They're gonna shape what our future looks like, right? Um, so, and then for you as individuals, some of you, especially as more experienced heads, start pouring into the younger generations, right? Like take perhaps what you've learned here and start to now pass it off. Paul says to Timothy that what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who can just sit on their, their butts. No, faithful men who can teach others likewise. Right? That's what's going to bear fruit over time. Um, this is not a project to expect quick results. This is a long haul because it took a long time for us to get here. It'll, if anything, by the grace of God, is going to change, it'll take a while too. Okay? So, yeah. Great. One last. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in a general sense, what we're talking about here is influencing society for the, for the betterment, mm-hmm. like to get back to Christian morals. So, like, for, like, one of my favorite quotes from John Maxwell is, leadership, this is by the time we were talking, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. Mm. So within that context, influence only happens when people understand that they matter. Yeah. And another other saying of John Maxwell is, people won't care what you know until they know that you care. Right. So would it, be, would it be a little more simplistic? Would it, uh, let me change that. Would it, be, would it, would it help take the pressure off mm-hmm. people if they, if they use that kind of filter for what, like the actions they're taking to make that change? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll just comment to that. Uh, I think sometimes we, there's a culture within evangelicalism of celebrityism that looks at like the big names who made big changes, like the Billy Grahams, let's say, and so on. And we think that that's how culture changes. But I don't think that's actually true. Like, God bless that he uses big names, like awesome. But you know how the early church turned the Roman world upside down? It was just through average, normal people being faithful, sharing the gospel with their neighbor, discipling their kids. And over a couple of generations, the Roman society was turned upside down. Such to the extent that the emperor Constantine and his conversion is, you know, debated eventually made Christianity the religiolista, right? The, the legal religion of Rome, right? But that took time. And I think to your point, um, that's a good word for us to remember. Like, what I'm talking about here is not a call to say that you need to be some big public speaker with a huge platform who is going to make him waves or whatever. Like, I mean, if God blesses you that way, awesome, right? Use that for his glory. But be faithful in the small. 
He's faithful with little and can be entrusted with more, right? God's given you a certain sphere of influence. If you're a husband, a father, a brother, a sister, uh, you know, whatever, you know, whatever you, you have within your sphere of influence, be faithful with that. Influence those people, like pass on and disciple them. And then trust the results to God. If more and more Christians just are devoted to doing that, don't underestimate how small beginnings can multiply, right? Uh, that's, I think, the real principle for this. A lot of people who right now, it's irony, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, a lot of Christians who are talking about the culture wars, they don't see the irony that they're taking the same uh, approach that the left does in terms of looking for positions of power in order to influence society. They're like, oh, if we vote the right guy in, then things will change. They want top-down change, but that's the strategy of the left. Real change, real lasting change is bottom-up. Remember what I said prior, that politics is downstream from culture. You could change the politics all you want. If the culture hasn't changed, it's not going to matter. You could elect the most righteous Christian guy as like, you know, our prime minister. If our culture doesn't change and Canada continues godless, it will reject every good thing that he tries to do. Real change is not top-down, it's bottom-up. It starts with us, right? And this is why this, I believe this has to be a grassroots movement that starts in churches. And that's why I think churches and individual Christians are the most powerful thing. It's decentralized power. And I think it's a good thing too, because there's no way that you can shut that down, right? If, if we put like, you know, one figurehead guy in power who is the most, you know, visible thing, it's easy to shut that down. But when you have a grassroots movement of just individual Christians being faithful, discipling their kids, not letting their kids be indoctrinated by the state on all of these godless ideologies, how do you stop that? You can. Right? We just went through the last few years. Mm-hmm. The convoy in Canada, all the way over people in the that they don't agree with us. The convoy in Canada was exactly what you were talking about. It was a grassroots movement of every demographic you could think of in this country. And it terrified the leaders of the country. And that's why we're back now. Mm. We, we should really cut on back that and say, why is that? Yeah. What was really going on here? I think as Christians, we don't pay our attention. You started out today really, really on point with the whole concept of you only serve one master. Behind that is a realization that we need to really grab on mm. in the world where we're living. We are in the midst of a battle between power and race balance. This is not about individual people. Yeah. We tend to focus on individual people, but yeah, some of them know what they're doing. The vast majority of followers, mm. they don't really know, they get manipulated, they get teased on different words. We need to understand that Satan counterfeits everything good mm. that God's trying to do. Everything. Yeah. We can look at the sexual revolution, we can talk about that, you, everything he counterfeits. Yeah. So when you look closer, you recognize something else. You used the word quite often halfway through, talking about the aspect of guilt. Mm. Look really close at the social aspects in our country, from abortion, LGBTQ, the whole issue of multitudes of them that happened during COVID. Uh, what we're going to be dealing with in the next number of years, the climate, emergency agenda, manipulation, guilt, shame, that's not a problem. Mm. Of God, what is it? 
conviction of the spirit. Totally different from shame and guilt. The interesting part of all this is when you have a populace or a group of people who end up being controlled by those influences, they completely lose track of who they are, of what's right, of what's wrong. You could even say they lose their standard. And the best example of that I heard on a video today. This woman was talking a little about different things. She made this statement, and this just exemplifies what we see happening in the world today. And what we've heard even from the leader of our own country, mm-hmm. similar statement. She said this. I don't believe in eating eggs because they're little chicks. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's one way. And later on in the talk, when asked about abortion, she said, well, what's the big deal? It's just a mass of cells. <laughs> right. You see the illogical thing. But that is what happens yeah. when we are influenced by the works of the devil. You yeah. literally lose complete yeah. moral standards. Sin is insane. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so I'll just comment on what the brother has said. Um, he's right in pointing out that um, we need to keep in mind that ultimately this battle is a spiritual one. Right? Um, just like I said, there's no neutrality. You serve one master. He's either Christ or Satan. Right? Um, and ultimately, that's what we're dealing with here. Not to be like, you know, looking for a demon under every bush, but understanding that ultimately, when it comes to ideologies that are against the Christian worldview, you're dealing with anti-Christ ideologies. They're against Christ, right? That there is spiritual forces at work. This is why Paul says that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, which is super important to understand as you engage with people who differ with us. Realize your battle is not with flesh and blood. That person might be all aggravated and yelling at you and all the things, right? But ultimately, they are not your enemy. They are mission field. Right? The enemy is a spiritual one. And our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty. They're tearing down our strongholds and destroying arguments. Right? This is why it's important for us to be equipped in a biblical worldview. That's part of our arsenal, so to speak. That's our offense. It's not violence, but it is a, a, a rational conversation with people, helping them to see the illogic of their position and then the beauty, not just the truth, of a Christian worldview. Right? Um, that's one of the things I'll also just close with two. Um, be careful as you're presenting, and I'll say this especially to young men, uh, particularly the young teenage men that I see some here, because um, I used to be one of you guys, and when you grab onto some like, you know, truth, and you're really passionate about it, you can be very zealous, and going like a bulldog with truth, using it like a sledgehammer. Um, but you, there's a way to answer a person where you lose the questioner, right? Um, we need to, yes, uphold truth, but truth with grace. And realize that the ultimate enemy is not the person I see in front of me. My enemy is not fleshly, but it's a spiritual enemy. And they're blinded by the God of this age. I need to have compassion on them. And that'll just temper the way that you go about, yes, expressing truth, not compromising, but seeing that in a way that's gracious and upholding and honoring Christ. Um, So hopefully that's helpful in that, yes, absolutely, spiritual warfare, 100%. There are demonic forces at play, 100%. But just let that also inform how you engage with people who disagree. Ultimately, we're not battling with them. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading years ago a book called uh, The Taste for New Wine. Mm. There's one statement that jumped out at me and I've never forgotten it. The truth without love is brutality. Yeah. Without truth is hypocrisy. Yeah. 
and you've got to speak the truth in love, as the Lord God said. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, they are very fearful. If they yeah. say something, they're going to get put down or in trouble, or someone's going to report on them. Yeah. And the spirit of fear is paralyzed instead of faith mobilizing, okay? Mm. I, I sent out six or eight emails this week because of what they're talking about doing in Huntsville with the mm. rainbow flag. And uh, I got four reports back, four emails back. Mm. One very strong saying, I sense you're very zealous, but you're a hypocrite. Mm. And, uh, you're, and I won't even talk to you because of what you said. Mm. So right away they label you, but we got yeah. to expect that. Yep. You wear them all men speak well of us. Yeah. yeah. You know, Jesus says you're in good company then. Because right, so they persecuted the prophets. Um, you know, just go, go look at the Beatitudes. That's, the, that's, the, that's how he ends off the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are you when men, you know, persecute you and revile you for my name's sake, right? Um, we have to expect opposition. That will come with the territory, especially with how far gone the culture is now. Um, but that's no reason to, sh- to cower in fear. That's no reason to shrink back. We still are faithful to Christ ultimately. He's our Lord. He's the one who we follow. He's the one who we're trying to honor, right? Um, and Paul even tells us, you know, to expect that there's going to be some to whom you are the stench of death, but then to others who you are the fragrance of life. And that's, that's really the difference is up to the Spirit's work in their life, right? Sometimes we think that we have to be the Holy Spirit. We're not, right? We're the heralds of truth, right? The Spirit is the one who applies that truth and convicts, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? So your job is faithful witness. And entrusting and praying that the spirit will work in that person's life. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, Satan's not a creator, right? He, he's he basically just defaces God's creation. He can't create anything new. He just defaces what God has already created. Yeah. Um, so we're at time. Uh, I will just pray briefly to officially close us. If you want to stay and continue to engage and ask questions and stuff, I'm more than willing to to stay back, but let me dismiss us here. God, we thank you for this evening. Um, Thank you for uh, the different topics that were covered. I know it was a lot, and I got to pray that you would cover for my weaknesses and uh, whatever was not um, expressed clearly, or uh, perhaps it was not even of you that you would strike it from our memories, but God, I pray that you would take what was done today and that you would bless it, oh God, this humble offering. We pray, oh God, as men, um, would you give us your spirit, a spirit of courage, oh God, of boldness, of a sound mind uh, that doesn't have fear of consequence, oh God, but fears you. You're the one who we're supposed to fear. And God, I pray that as men, as we go out uh, as leaders in our various spheres, in our homes, in our jobs, at school, wherever you place us, oh God, um, help us to be shining lights, oh God of Christ. Um, he is the ultimate model that we follow. He is the true perfect man who we, who we, we strive to be like. Um, and as followers of him, who is the way, the truth, and the life of God, help us to uphold truth, uh, even if it costs us a lot of God, and help us to be a community that is devoted to truth, that is devoted to helping one another um, uphold the truth, even if it costs that we would be there um, to support one another, to be there to, to, um, to even provide practical ways of supporting brothers who may um, pay the ultimate price for standing for truth. Uh, and God, I pray that um, through all of this, through this everyday faithfulness of um, men leading their families and discipling their kids and being faithful in their jobs, 
that you would bring about cultural reform and change, oh God, um, not for the sake of our name, but for the sake of Christ and honoring him, um, that he might have the fullness of the reward for which he died, oh God, that many more people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for this church, pray for Pastor Daryl and the elder team here. God, is is a, a heavy thing to lead a church in these times. Um, that is not lost to me. I pray for these men that they would be praying for the elders, that they would support them, um, that they would be often on their knees begging for you to continue to empower these elders um, with your spirit's um, unction, oh God, to preach your word unapologetically and boldly, clearly, and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, oh God. I pray for these men, uh, for these elders and their families as well, that you guard them. God, I know that the enemy often comes against uh, uh, elders uh, family, and especially his marriage. So God, we pray that you'd protect them as well. Um, would you bless this church and continue to use it as a faithful, faithful gospel light in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.